is, amongst other things, inconvenient. There are myriad costs associated, some obvious and some less apparent. There are funeral expenses, last will and testaments to resolve legally, but also environmental and psychological impacts, all dotted with pesky regulations. Let's enumerate and consider the true costs of dying this week. Philosophers. Philosophers. All right, Mr. David. I got a topic for us today. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Something, one of the two inevitabilities, so it would seem, in life. Uh, and we talked enough about taxes, so let's talk about death a little bit. Okay. We've talked about death before. Have we? Yeah. We talked about, like, the, the philosophy around death. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's talk about some of the practicalities around death. <laughs> then yes um and not to say this is going to be too much of a bummer of an episode i don't think that's the the point of this but i find that there are a ton of odd things that kind of surround the topic of dying specifically people dying um that i don't hear discussed a lot and they're kind of strange and i don't know i think they're they're worth our time okay all right so uh, let's start out talking about um Something else that is an unavoidable, it seems, cost. Um, so everything costs something. So so does dying, of course. Of course. Um, how else could it be? How else could it be? It turns out um, dying does not make you immune to expenses. Um, well, it does make you immune to expenses. Fair enough. But but you will place expense onto somebody else. Yes, and any you know, and, and I'm sure any good estate planner would tell you it's actually on you to help figure this out and pay for it before your demise. So for those of you who are that person, here we go. Anyone else, uh, refer your next of kin. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about a little of the things that go around, and I'm sure this by no means will be an exhaustive list. Uh, for disclaimer's sake, neither David or I are licensed morticians, so... Uh, or funeral directors, so we don't know. I thought you were about to say neither David or I are dead. <laughs> neither David <laughs> or, or I are died. dead. So we are just <laughs> purely speculating here on this topic. Um, but let's let's go down some of the obvious things. So, congratulations, you've died. Um, you're now the owner of a corpse, next of kin. Uh, you got to do something with that corpse. Um, you can't just keep it because it turns out. Well, uh, I can't decorate my house with it. <laughs> Actually, no. Um, so this is not, not the first bullet on the topic, but it it's kind of it it kind of percolates down through all of these things. There are a sh there there are a surprising number of laws that have to do with a corpse and also death in general, which are kind of interesting. Um, we'll get to those later, but one of those, you know, to to stay compliant with all of these deathly regulations, um, you. you you have to have a vessel for this thing and a process by which to get it to that vessel. So, um, when you first have a dead body, uh, there are licensed individuals who will, who, who have to be licensed by the way, who will come alleviate you of that corpse and take it somewhere. Um, so that's step one. Because of course, as with anything, death initiates a contract. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, not only do these have to be licensed individuals that come and procure the corpse, it also takes licensed individuals to declare that the corpse is in fact a corpse, which is also strange. Um, because up until that point, you're still alive as far as the law is concerned. You're still a person, a legal entity. But the moment you die, now you're a dead legal entity uh, until such time as that, that transition takes place. So someone comes along and transitions you from a living legal entity to a dead legal entity. Um usually the same person that will also dis dispose of the corpse initially um, in a, you know, the, and these people are licensed. And then you have a licensed vehicle for transporting dead people because, you know, even though it's just a van to anyone else, it's a special van. This is a dead person van that we call a hearse. Uh, it even looks kind of stylish. But anyway, so um, th then that comes along and you pay for that service and they take it to a special place where we house dead people temporarily. A, you know, a, a, a mortal motel, if you will. Um, it's called a morgue. And uh, then they hang on to your body for a period of time. Now, um, once this happens, you one of the first things that the, the, the living get to talk about is the funeral or insert your particular ceremony for your culture here um the death ceremony because 
we need one of those. Yes, of course. Um, so I also want to take a quick side note here. Uh, actually, no, we'll, 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 we'll cover those later. This is under point three. So anyway, it's gone now. Uh, now they're going to do something to your corpse. Now, depending on your, your preference, your maybe religious beliefs or customs, sometimes uh, people want to see the dead body again. Uh, and, and this had a practical purpose in the past, um, back when we didn't necessarily trust people. You, you kind of had to prove to people that this person had in fact died. And what better proof than, well, here's the there body. There he is. You can see him. You can touch him. Yeah. You can touch him if you want. You can poke him with a stick and nothing will happen. So there you go. Congratulations. You've now proved his death. Um, other cultures, it's whisk it away and you never see it again. Um, and this is all getting us to the point of the actual final vessel that the body will inhabit. So um, depending on the processing, be it some kind of modern form of mummification where we remove all your organs and fill you up with preservatives to keep you looking as alive as possible for the next couple of weeks until the ceremony and then your immediate burial, uh, <clears throat> you have to pick a way, like, where is this body going to end up? So you can either end up in an urn or some other vessel like that once cremated. Um, there are coffins, caskets, vaults, and mausoleums, and some of these you use multiple uh, you can put an urn or a vault in a mausoleum and you can put a coffin or a casket in a vault and in a mausoleum or just burying them in the ground. So all of these things cost money um, and, and a shocking amount of money for some like a good example. Uh, so a wooden casket, uh, which it doesn't necessarily like, caskets are not just wood just for from my understanding caskets are six sided coffins are four. That's that's the only difference, really. Um, who knew? Okay. At, th at least that's what I was told. I could be wrong about this. I'm sure there is the one mortician that watches this is going to tell me how I'm wrong, but please feel free to do that. Um, so those can be kind of expensive. Um, several thousands of dollars for a pretty box in which to put a body. Okay, so that you've now paid the people to come remove the body. You've paid for the people to declare that it's now a dead legal entity now you've also paid for the processing of the body and now you're paying for the vessel of the body and these things add up very very quickly um so what else does this do well the place where this body ends up if it's not in an urn in someone's private possession which is the cheapest way to actually kind of have the terminal end of the body um, you kind of have land that's designated for this, or at least in the United States, mm -hmm. we, we have to designate areas for corpse disposal, funeral plots, if you will, or a cemetery. And the interesting thing about this is this is one of the few ways that land ends an effective dead end spot where it can <laughs> no longer, <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, where this land can now no longer essentially be used for anything else. There are very few times that you can declare this piece of land as being used for something, you know, and then that be permanent, you know, even, even national monuments, historical sites, which are as close to cemeteries as you can get for more than one reason. Um, can still be improved they still can be changed and what sits atop them can be changed it's very very difficult but it's possible but a land that has a body buried beneath it on purpose can't generally speaking don't get me wrong i know there is a very tedious process of actually relocating a cemetery which to, in my mind is it's not hilarious, but maybe kind of hilarious, depending on who you are, to think of, well, I want to build this new apartment complex, but there's a cemetery here. Well, move the cemetery, which would involve exhuming all of the bodies and then keeping them in a similar arrangement than moving them somewhere else. Um, I don't know. It's just strange to me. But there's a cost associated with that. Um, not directly. Like, yes, you do have to pay for the piece of land in which you're going to put this body, but the cost that the value you then place on that land in how much it would cost to make that land useful again is just tremendous. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, this is one of the burials. Well, burying the dead and marking the spot not to be used again. Right. Is one of those traditions that just has not scaled well with the explosion of human population. Yep. Like, 
People started doing that when there were probably thousands of people. Now there are billions of people, right. and we're still doing this. Right. We're going to run out of land before too long if we continue doing that. Right, because the other thing to go along with that is not all land is suitable for burying a corpse. Right. Turns out, um, the kind of land that's very useful for burying a corpse is also kind of the land that's very good for building homes on. It doesn't need to flood frequently. It doesn't need to, for obvious reasons, um, it doesn't need to, it can't be too, you know, rocky. You have to be able to dig this hole, you know. Um, the other, like, monetary costs that go along with dying, um, these come in forms of death insurance or burial insurance and life insurance. Now, these are ways that if you're a responsible human being, can kind of offset those costs before you you need to for them uh and and that's kind of a huge thing um granted to be fair life insurance is not always about taking care of your disposal a lot of the times it has to do with taking care of the other aspects of your life where you would spend your money like your family right that's where that's where the name comes from life insurance you're insuring the things that your life provided to others exactly Um, um which is why normally like at least policies that i have looked at are proportional to your salary you you know obviously you can you can take out as big a life uh life insurance policy as you want but generally it's always discussed in terms of that because that's what you're thinking about you're thinking okay i have a family here's what i'm providing them right now i want to provide them with the same thing that i'm currently providing them for x amount of years into the future after i die right now another funny consequence of this as well that I don't think a lot of people are aware of is that you are not the only person who can take out a life insurance policy on yourself. No, anyone who has an interest in your life, yeah, can in fact. Um, and the most common area you see this are employers. Depending on how vital you are to the operation of a business, a business will often take out a life insurance policy on an employee to help tide them over until they're able to find a suitable replacement. Did not know that until I signed one of those agreements and thought it was kind of strange that my company had a vested interest in my death, um, <laughs> which which is interesting to think about. But you know, I, I found it fascinating. Um, but anyone else can as well, and that's that's also interesting. Um, I, it makes me wonder if there are death speculators out there who think they have a better model for the remaining lifespan of an individual and how much that would cost. Like the good example being. Yeah. You know, typically speaking, the older you get, the more expensive life insurance is because insurance is, a, it's a it's it's a risk assessment by the insurance. Right. The way that most normal insurance goes is you get to pay a low premium because the insurance company is is banking on everyone paying the low premiums and only a few people actually needing payouts. Um, right. So you can charge something that actually would not cover the costs if everyone had a problem and needed a payout. Um, but because almost nobody actually needs anything, then it works. Um, and, and, you know, you have a few, you have a few, of course, the, the classic 80, 20 rule, 20% of the customers will have 80% of the expenses, um, for the insurance company. And then they just get to pocket the rest. Right. Um, but yes, burial insurance and life insurance are those interesting cases where we know everyone is going to need a payout. Right. You're going to die. Right. Um, so the game is a little different. Um, the the two ways that I've seen insurance, com- specifically life insurance policies, make financial sense, <laughs> being this, is that while everyone dies, not everyone will maintain their life insurance policy till death. Right. So most life insurance policies come with a cash value option, which is less than the amount that you've paid in, almost always has to be for this to make financial sense where you can decide okay and this happens a lot um a good example i'll I'll, I'll use myself as an example my parents took out a life insurance policy on me when i was born (laughs) uh even though i did not provide anything that they would lose out on um it was mainly to cover the event of uh, a death before i was an adult uh this is a very cheap life insurance policy because child mortality rates are fairly low so the likelihood of I need it was very low and my parents paid very little. And then when I became an adult, um, specifically around 25, I was able to take over that life insurance policy and convert it to a full on 
now I have my own family that I would be using to cover this for. It's no longer just for in the event of my death. Uh, it would allow my parents to, you know, bury me. And then also take time off to do that from work and not be able to, and, and be able to supplement their lack of income for that period of time. But more likely the case, I would get my own life insurance policy as an adult via an employer. But now I have a little bit of a nest egg in the form of this other life insurance policy where I could cash it out for its cash value and use that like a down payment on a mortgage, something like that. I see that happen a lot. And in that case, the life insurance company is more than happy to do that for you because they've paid in maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 over the course of your life so far, granted, and, you know, pennies every day, but it adds up. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but the life insurance company does not just put that money in an account. They're using this money to try to make more money, be it by investing it, you know, keeping it with inflation, yeah, there's all different ways. It's like they're they're just banks, really, in, in with a different purpose. Yeah. Um, so that's they're counting on that happening to some degree, and then also um the occasional wrongful death where the life insurance policy doesn't have to pay out. You know, that's the other thing that's interesting. Dying is not the only trigger. You have to die in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also interesting, and I won't go into that, but. They have their big formulas and models for calculating how much you, what percentage of their people, their clientele will pay in and then how much they'll have to pay out. And as long as they're receiving more money than they're paying out, it's a successful business model. Um, and then the last thing associated with this is their, the cost of legal arbitration for handling what you left behind. Mm-hmm. So even if you have the most comprehensive will and testament out there, which actually isn't that hard, you can write it as a single line, uh, X designated individual gets all my stuff all your stuff including your debts um but you still have to have a licensed person with authority to be able to do that and these people get paid to do that so you have to pay a fee to have someone arbitrate or execute your will and testament so those are all of, at least those are the things that off the top of my head when i was making the list of things to talk about under this topic came to my mind and i'm sure there are others um but, uh, like, for example, sometimes life insurance is used to pay those debts um, in the event that you died before you were able to be debt-free, which is often the case, given how ubiquitous debt is these days. Um, and, you know, in, you know bar- lending companies are more than happy to help prop up life insurance policies because then they'll at least get their payout, even if it's after you die, you know. Um, and that can also help alleviate burden because there's there's some interesting interesting thoughts behind that uh, I've, that I've had discussions with people about. People have different ideas about what like should be done with a person's remaining things and assets after they die. Um, some people are of the opinion that the most fair thing to do for society is to take those things and liquidate them and then just distribute that money out. So essentially you don't get to decide what happens to your stuff after you die. You're dead. Everyone else just gets a free for all on it essentially and gets peace. And that's to, and that helps essentially build in this wealth redistribution loop to where it doesn't matter how successful someone was in life in death, they can benefit everyone equally. That's Mm -hmm. one philosophy. The other philosophy is it doesn't matter if you're dead, you can still own property um, but by that, we mean you get to decide how your stuff is handed, uh, because the assumption there being that if you knew when you were going to die, you could have done you that would before. have done it yourself before dying. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and yeah, we institute wills because people often die unexpectedly. Right. And I could do that perfectly fine before. So why just because I happened to die when I didn't expect it, I couldn't have already accounted for that. And this also helps um, alleviate some of the other things that have to do with um, value of things. So a good example of that being you may have owned like a very dirt cheap home that didn't that it's not it's maybe worth very little, but to specific people, its sentimental value is much higher. So the best transfer you could get on that is to go ahead and transfer it to those people um so that they actually get to keep it and you see this happen a lot with family estates you know people have this fascination with oh well my parents lived in this house my grandparents lived in this house this family's or this estate has been in the family for x generations and that's sentimentally important to them so that kind of would get broken in this process of well but we're going to sell it off 
to you now and you're going to have to pay more for it because you want it more um, and you're willing to pay more for it and then that's used to distribute out from there. So that's another way of heard people discuss it but people love to discuss the valuables that are left over right people love to discuss yep. oh well they left millions of dollars behind who gets it you know people will come out of the woodwork to fight over that but you can also die with debts mm-hmm. and that's the other thing no one wants to fight over i know and all of a sudden people have very different ideas about this when it's debt so we could also say well we're going to divvy up all their stuff what if we just divvied up their debt amongst everybody? So now everyone has to collectively pay for the life this person led. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. I didn't... Well, I didn't accumulate those debts. I shouldn't have to pay for it. <laughs> hmm. It's different when you don't benefit, is it? Right? <laughs> um, and that's usually what I say to people who think that we should just liquidate some people's assets. They also only ever talk about the wealthiest people in society where they actually might get more well, than yeah. a few cents. Also, while we're on this topic, I, I, I was just briefly thinking about like the... The actual real-world implications of a a complete asset liquidation death tax, um, you know. So imagine imagine your spouse dies, and all the expensive things you own, like your home and the and the vehicles, are in your spouse's name. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry your spouse died, but all of this stuff belongs to the government now and we're selling all of it. Right. And we're giving the money to everyone across the entire country, which is, so basically peanuts for everybody. Um, so that, that's that's too bad uh, what happened to your spouse, but uh, get out. Right. Uh, <laughs> get out of the house. <laughs> well, I think practically speaking, that wouldn't happen uh, because one of the few institutions we tend to put way more emphasis on um, than death and birth is marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always go back, <clears throat> go back to all is fair and love and war. You know, that, that kind of saying has some interesting merit behind it. Um, for example, you cannot compel. I'm the only person that cannot be compelled to testify against somebody. Cause you can even be compelled to testify against yourself. Funnily enough. Um, you can opt out by, Fifth Amendment, your but Fifth they can try. Right, yeah. But the only person they can't even try to get to testify against you is your spouse, which is hilarious to me. Like, we we all acknowledge that it's the it's interesting that we put we what how do I put this? It's interesting to see what we put above the truth, right? Right. And it is more important to us as a society, according to the law. If yes. you re- if you read the law, your inter- your interpretation of the society would be. We are more concerned with keeping spouses from having to testify against each other than figuring out the truth. Exactly. And that is so fascinating to me. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm aware that this gets abused. And even people in society are acknowledged this gets abused all the time. You know, um, people who may have been doing like a good example is people who have made their money via illegitimate means that we would that society would consider to be immoral often will put that money in their spouse's name because they know they have that protection and we know this happens, but we don't even discuss writing exemptions for that case. It doesn't matter. That institution is so important and so sanctimonious that it's above truth and reprieve, which being a married person, I'm kind of happy about because like, cool, I have found one of the biggest legal loopholes there is just having another person that I have a special relationship with legally on paper and I'm, I'm immune to all kinds of stuff now just for doing that. And not if, o- hypothetically, you were ever to do something. <laughs> True. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much, my David, my lawyer, everybody. <laughs> no, 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 no. Disclaimer, disclaimer. I'm not an attorney. That's right. Neither of us are. And I'm not, and I'm especially not Joe's attorney. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's just absolutely fascinating. Uh, we should just do a whole episode about that institution at some point. I think that would be interesting. It could be. But anyway, we're, we're not going down that rabbit hole no. now. But yeah. Um, but that being said, you know, I think we would still have that exemption. But say after married, you know, and assuming there's not this weird chain of marriage that happens that allows I was going to say, th- there's your, your loophole to escape the death taxes. Just marry again before you die. Right, marry someone way younger just to keep in the family 
They don't even have to be younger so long as you don't die together. Right. So long as you don't die at the same time. Exactly. You can, you can keep the chain going forever. Right. Um. Absolutely. But but like I said, they, people get real you know fiddly about it when all of a sudden it's this person's debts. And uh, to be fair, I do think it is kind of wrong to all of a sudden say, hey, um, I know that you had an estranged relationship with this person, but they listed you as their next of kin and they owed $100,000 for cancer payments or whatever, cancer treatments. Well, the hospital still would like to get that money, so here's a bill. Here's a bill. Uh, um, yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. A lot, of the to- a lot of the ways that's handled these days is you liquidate the assets to cover the debts and then anything left over is passed on and that's kind of the way it's handled which i don't see anything wrong with that personally um but yeah so uh let's move on to the next area because we have four bullet four main bullet points um so the first one was like the the weird costs that are associated with dying like and we're talking monetary costs here yes uh the next one is the environmental costs of death um so specifically to do with our traditions yes um so the first one is burial which is one of at least in the west most common ways we dispose of a corpse is by putting it in the ground putting it in the ground except we don't except we don't that's right we don't just put it in the ground we put it we in an impenetrable box (laughs) well first we make it to where that body doesn't want to decompose by stuffing it full of preservatives yes Okay. Which are bad for the environment. Which are bad for the environment. Like formaldehyde and such. And we make them up so that they look alive for the for the funeral. Then we put them in a aluminum box, which is pretty, to honor the person. And then we take that aluminum box and put it in a concrete vault that's impenetrable. And then we put that in a hole and cover it with dirt. And again, this very protected area where we try our best to make sure that the body can't get out and then we leave it there for, because we're very afraid of them getting up and walking out. Absolutely. Um, well, and, and all of this and all of this, I think comes from, we don't, this odd fear that we don't want to imagine the decomposition. Like we're afraid of that. This is, yeah, this is all coming from the, uh, the squeamishness around death. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't like to the culture the the culture is one that does not appreciate contemplating the realities of death right that's why yeah that's why we doll bodies up for the funeral mm-hmm. if you just looked at them it would look like they're asleep right because that's how we want to feel i guess right well and that all tie into our third point which is um the psychological harm in the way yes. we deal with death. But we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. So what about uh, the other way, more common way we, we deal with corpse disposal, which is cremation. cremation. Yes. yes. Well, um, there's this false fact, but it's close enough to the truth that you may have heard before, where we're essentially just water bags, 70% water, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but uh, have you ever tried to burn water? <laughs> I can't say that I have. Well, I've, I've boiled water. Does that count? No. <laughs> um, but that's what we do when we cremate corpses. Um, <laughs> so turns out it's actually really hard to burn a body, believe it or not. To 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 turn it into dust, it's very difficult. Um, I don't know the exact number, but you consume many, 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 many cubic meters or volumes worth of natural gas which is the most common fuel used in yeah. corpse disposal because it burns clean, TM, um, <laughs> to to incinerate this corpse. So now we're burning fossil fuels just so that this body, which would do its thing anyway, like every other living thing, would just turn yes, back to corpses dirt anyway. are biodegradable, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but because we can't stand it... Um, we want to turn them into a powdered dust, which releases into the air all kinds of things, by the way. Um, not just the fact that we're burning a ton of fossil fuels to make this happen, um, but the concerns of you're releasing biomatter into the atmosphere, which may or may not be contaminated with God knows what since the person died. Um, and you're just 
throwing yeah, dead it things the are air. not exactly healthy. <laughs> no, but we're going to burn it anyway. Um, yeah, so that one's pretty obvious once you kind of think it through. The third way we currently dispose of bodies, which I didn't put on the list, but it's it's and because it's so infrequent. Uh, and this is one that I would tend to be more okay with. You can have your body used for science or you, you can donate yes. a body yep. to an institution that will use it for some form of study. And this usually involves, well, like, for example, you might be an organ donor, right? So part of this is part of your body will be taken and used for other things. Um, typically, your well, organs, as the name suggests. And if you have that nice little organ donor slot on the bottom of your ID. Um, and if they harvest you fresh enough, these things can go off to actually maybe benefit other people's lives or be used in a lab for research. But I don't know how those are eventually disposed of. Probably not in a great way either. But one of the most environmentally friendly ways that you, your body can be disposed of for science is in a body farm where we actually study how bodies decompose. So you're allowed to essentially be decomposed naturally, but for the sake of study. Um, so that's the third most common way people get disposed of, even though it's not common at all. Um, and then we talk a little bit about the wrong way. So you and I have joked a lot before about what we would like to happen to our bodies. Um, I don't know that I was joking, but go on. Well, okay. I wasn't either, but it's joking maybe in the levity that we used when discussing it. But yeah, throw me in a biodegradable sack and throw me under a tree somewhere or dig a hole and just throw my... You're even more symbolic than me. (laughs) Fair enough. But like the the end of the day, the point is let me return to dust like I would anyway. Yes. And you can still put me out of sight, bury me. That's, that's fine. You know, it's, it's not going to slow down the process very much for me to be under the ground doing this because the bacteria that ended my decomposition don't care where that happens. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Put a hole in the ground. Let me decompose. You'll see a soft spot after a while because bodies are gooey and creates a little bit of a sinkhole. But it's not a big deal, you know, especially if you're bearing me out where no one cares anyway. And let things feed on me and return me to, you know. I won't mind. I, being dead, won't mind. And, uh, yeah. But that's illegal, apparently. Mm -hmm. Wrongful disposal of a corpse which is a very interesting set of laws that I don't really want to go into right now because I'll just get angry. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say one of the few things, if you're looking to advocate for something around this, advocate for more environmentally friendly ways to dispose of corpses. Um, one of the few environmental movements I can absolutely get behind. Um, so the last thing, uh, uh, the bullet point three of four, because we kind of talked about four all throughout this, which is yes. how we regulate death. Yes. Um, but I want to talk, go ahead and talk about point three, which I think to me is the most poignant and I have some anecdotes mm-hmm. about. And so that's the psychological harm in the pursuit of comfort when we're talking about the subject of death. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about how we deal with death as a society now versus how we have done it in the past. So out of our, well, okay. So all of the things we do now, funerals, all of these things we mentioned before, you know, the different vessels for holding a corpse, the person's already dead, right? Yeah. And unless your religion has a post-death component, and even if it does, most of them don't even mention the life that you, of everyone else around you Mm -hmm. after the fact, it's usually go to a other dimension or whatever, you're reincarnated elsewhere, you know, um, but assuming all of those things out of the window here, like we're not going to talk about that. Practically speaking, all of these things are done not for the person who died, but for everyone else who knew that person. Mm-hmm. Funerals are not for the dead person. They're no. for the family and friends of the dead person. Yep. Um, and the Institution of closure. Yes. But we haven't always done those things, and they weren't always done the way we do them now. So the modern fad about dealing with death is remove the body as soon as possible from others, right? That's the current policy, you know, the the common, common occurrence. Um, There are some good reasons for this to, to be fair. 
back when we dealt with plagues and such, dead bodies are huge vectors for a lot of very bad diseases. Yes. Because now you have a body that was already filled with a bunch of harmful bacteria, viruses, diseases. You already had those things, but your immune system was taking care of it. Well, the moment you die, your body's defenses start to break down and you start to leak those things out, right? That, that starts to happen. So that is one reason we might want to get rid of a body. But that doesn't happen instantly. You know, a, a dead body is no more contagious. Yeah, yeah. The, the the notion of a the moment you're dead. I was gonna I was gonna object to that a moment ago anyway. There there isn't a moment in which you die. There's Correct. a moment in which you lose consciousness for the last time. Um that's probably the most definite thing that we could point to. But like your body is a whole bunch of different systems interacting with one another. Just because you lose consciousness for the last time and your heart stops beating or something like that, there's all kinds of other stuff still doing its thing. It has no idea that you're dead. Right. Um, so, what used to happen, and what still happens in some places, and this is what my two anecdotes are about. Um, so, I've seen two dead bodies before uh, that were not at funerals. Uh, and they were both very, very interesting. And... Uh, I'm going to walk through them here and talk about the psychological harm aspect. So right now, the typically the thing we do is we remove the body as soon as possible. And if you're not there for the moment of death, you probably will not see the body until the funeral. Um, so, and I've had that happen plenty of times in my life, but there are two times where that didn't happen. And I would like to compare my experiences and offer maybe some anecdotes and try to maybe attach some thoughts about those. So, I think most people who have never seen a dead body outside of being in a hospital or a funeral, you know, the two places where we commonly would see a dead body, um, are familiar with the experience of going to a wake or a funeral where the body is dolled up, laid out for you to look at. Um, and then you're there with all the people who knew this person and you all kind of discuss and cr collectively cope with the fact that this person has died. Usually not right then. Um, so... That's the main experience. And now here are the other two. So the two people I've seen dead, I've seen an uncle who has died and I've seen a grandfather who has died. So the first time this uncle, um, I was at home. Uh, I was a I was, I think I was just become a teenager. So I was 13, 14 years old, I think at the time. And, uh, my, my father gets a phone call, uh, from a relative and says, hey, uncle, so-and-so had died. I don't want to use names too much here because once you have more than two names, it gets a little easier to dox me. Um, uncle so-and-so has died. Um, we would like you to come up for the funeral. And he says, okay. Well, he doesn't want to drag the whole family out into the middle of nowhere for the funeral. Um, that side of my family being literal hillbillies. Um, so he says, okay, son, do you, Joe, do you want to go with me? And I said, sure, I get out of school for it. Awesome, let's go. <laughs> so on a Tuesday morning, we jump in the car and we drive hours and hours to get out in the middle of nowhere. And we show up at his house. Um, his, his freshly widowed wife is there. And, you know, and I'm expecting to talk to all these people and then eventually we'll get around to the funeral. And so when we get there, you know, we walk inside and everyone's talking and she said, you want to, you know, pay your respects? And my dad says, sure. And she's like, all right, this way. And she points into the living room where there he is in his recliner st where he died three days ago <laughs> and has not moved. And I'm like, wait, hold up. Why is he here? What, why is the body here? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I'm so used to, oh, the funeral home has already come, picked him up at this point, like within hours of him passing. And he's just gone. And we're here to wait to go see him all dolled up. But no, I'm in the hillbilly part of the world now where what is a funeral home? So my father and I go into the living room and there he is. And he doesn't really smell yet or anything. He's been dead for a couple of days, but they've, you know, taken, sprayed, sprayed some Febreze on him. Something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and we, we pay our respects by just looking at the body. And in fact, you know, yep, that is a dead body. Yep. Thumbs up. Let's go eat dinner. And then for the next two days, other family crawling out of the woodwork all come and see it. Because that's what you do. That's how you know. No one lied about it, I guess. Um, 
And at the end of the two, you know, then three days after that, so now this dead body has been sitting in his recliner, which is also going to be thrown away when he gets disposed of, for obvious reasons. For many, many obvious reasons. Many, many obvious reasons. (laughs) So now, six days later, it's time to bury him. Well, so... That morning we get up, and then this by this time many other family have gathered, and you know people have been just sleeping all over this house with this dead body in the living room um, to make sure for sure he's dead, you know, because if he hasn't gotten up and eaten and used the bathroom in three days, then we know that's how we know uh, that he's actually dead apparently. Um, and so the entire time I've been there for three days, I'm walking around and just there he is, you know, and it's it's a weird thing to just get used to the fact that there's a dead body in the other room. You walk by it, you see it, you watch TV in the same room as it, you know, you're catching the game or the news. Um, And everyone just, just, it's like he's furniture. No one really cares once you get past it, you know. Um, And then we, on the end of the third day, go grab his coffin off the front porch because, you know, he's prepared himself for this, I guess. And uh, we put him in it, put it in the bed of a truck, drive it out somewhere and spend the morning digging a hole. Everyone gathers around the hole. Words are said caskets tossed in almost literally and then he's covered and that's it that's the end of it and then we go home along with his recliner because we threw that away as well so that was the first time and uh that was the did very you bury him with his recliner no we did not okay we i think they burned it afterwards but we took it out of the house because it did smell at that point yeah um the second time uh i had a grandfather who died fairly suddenly like we were notified when he was in the process of well dying at that point we didn't know he was going to die he was he had collapsed and everything. And so my, my folks were like, hey, you need to go down there. You know, we might need to go to the hospital or whatever. Because he, he had been dealing with medical issues. So by the time I arrived, I, I arrived to walk in to see him dead on the floor, just having died or been declared dead by the paramedics, like within minutes. And I have family members that are there. Um, and we're all there. He's still got, he's still intubated and everything. And then they remove him. You know, we wait for the funeral directors to get there and take him. And at that point, like, and what was really strange about that whole experience is when the funeral directors got there, and this is at like two in the morning at this point, they asked if we wanted to touch him one last time, you know, because you typically don't do that at a funeral. Like mm-hmm. that's one thing that's kind of taboo is you don't touch the body once it's that dolled up. Right. Um, for I one, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Maybe not, but I, I never saw it happen. So maybe, you know, social pressures said, oh, I've never seen anyone else do it. So I'm not going to do it. Right. I've seen it. Okay. I hadn't at that point, but yeah. So in that case, it was strange for me to be asked if I wanted to. And I did. And it was weird to feel a lukewarm body. And then when he was ready to leave, feel a cold one. Like it was weird to touch and be able to use your senses to interact with that process. Right. Yeah. So then he goes away and then there's a funeral later and then it's the normal, what you would expect. So what, you know, I've spent the last minutes, telling these stories for some reason. I have a point and I apologize uh, for taking as long as I did. The point is I have coped with the death of those two individuals better than any other people that have ever died. And one of them, I wasn't very close to one of them. I was close to, so I don't think it was how well I knew the person. I think it is way more psychologically better. And this is my opinion. TM here. I'm not a therapist and I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or anything like that. But in my opinion, being able to experience the death of another person that way was just a better way of coping with death than having the body just whisked away. Right. Nothing is more real than actually being there with the body. Yes. Yeah. It is an insanely visceral experience. That's the word I would use to describe it. Yes. Um, you just can't really explain it to another person adequately, I don't think, if you've never experienced it. And this was how, for the longest time in human history, we have dealt with death. It it, it is actually way more common over the span of human history for the body to just remain with the family and the people that that person knew instead of just being whisked away and dolled up differently. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I can't help but feel a little uncomfortable at funerals looking at a dolled up corpse after having seen a real one. It's actually in now in the realm of an uncanny valley for me. Yeah. And and that's not to say that it isn't for other people, but it, I just wasn't as aware of how uncanny that was until I've seen it for real. What they would look like before they're all dolled up, you know. Um, so I would question, I would question this pursuit of 
psychological comfort, this, this comfort, right? You know, the reason we do these things, we remove the body immediately and everything. We, we do these things because people supposedly feel more comfortable in the moment with those things. And, and to be fair, it, it is a, it is somewhat traumatizing to see a dead body. There, there is, there is an aspect to that that sets off some primal things in your head where this is not okay. You're afraid a little bit. You know, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but mm-hmm. you're, you, you go through a lot of emotions very rapidly seeing a dead body, especially someone that you may have cared about, you know, but being able to let your psychology handle all of those things and deal with that in the moment instead of stretching it out over the course of days where you can kind of abstract away what's happened and use platitudes like, well, well, he's in a better place. You know, we, we say and do all these things that are comforting in quotes, but they never quite satisfy that. I've never been more satisfied, and it's a weird word to say here, I know, with the loss of someone I cared about than having done it that way. So... I would say another cost associated with death, especially one of the ways we deal with death now, is it's psychologically harmful. Um, and and it's because people will hang on to that person long after they die and not achieve real closure. Yeah, every, everything about our institutions, our institutions of death, as well as our memes are uh, about death that people use as coping mechanisms. Um, are basically just denial writ large. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and any- that's not healthy. No. Um I mean, it's like getting stuck in the stage 1 of dealing with death, you know. Just kind of reinforcing you there instead of allowing you to go through the rest of the process. Yeah. So, um yeah, I would think that if we would like to see that, like like the two things before, and we've talked about the cost of dying, like, well, there should be cheaper options for that since it's a body. And it's, you know, you could effectively treat it the same way you would treat the same number of white and rotten food. That just, you know, and I don't mean that just be sound disrespectful, but you could treat it the same way. <laughs> or a dead pet. or yeah, Exactly. Um, then there's the environmental end cost you mentioned before. And then as far as the psychological cost, I think the other two things and ways we would make changes to help better the world by how we deal with death would also contribute to our own. There, there is a selfish benefit to, to these things. I, I think, and then it's not my place to tell other people how to deal with the death of a loved one, but having had that experience, I, I personally think that is a better way of dealing with it is allowing you to not get stuck up in that denial phase. And, and it is painful. Don't get me wrong. I, but death is always going to be painful for humans to deal with. We are not, it is not something that we are naturally comfortable with. Well, no. So that just accepting that, that we will never be comfortable with it, letting yourself be exposed to it and getting through the process, I would think in the long term is better um, for everyone involved. Um, so where does that bring us to? So we've talked about all these problems, right? And we've mm-hmm. suggested a few things that might make things better, but ultimately it doesn't matter how we think these things should be done. The reality is there are regulations in place that govern how we handle these things. And that is a problem. <laughs> so longtime listeners will know that David and I are not fans of regulations at all in any sense, really. Generally not. Generally not. I mean, he does play devil's advocate uh, at one point for our regulations. And I would refer you to that episode to watch him be a hypocrite, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just playing with you, man. Um, but wh- where does this all end up? Um, I would think that, you know, we need to not just take these things as for granted. And death is a taboo subject, actually, I would think. Maybe not the same way that other things are. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't maybe evoke the same response in people when you talk about death uh, as you would talk about, like, other things that are taboo. Um, but I do think it's worth the discussion. And I think, and that's why we're doing this episode, put my money where my mouth is here and let's talk about it on here then, you know? Um, but I think that there are a lot of issues, but because we're so afraid to talk about the subject, we don't ever acknowledge them. Uh, this is very similar to the toilet problem. You know, people don't like to talk about bathroom stuff, but it, you know, that, that, that has a bunch of implications that because we don't talk about it, we, they just never go solved, you know, yeah. or they just go unsolved. So I think death is also like that. So maybe, you know, if you've heard about this and you, 
you have choices that you're presented with in your life where you might maybe you can think about these things and try to do things in a better way for yourself for the environment and for others um yeah just food, food for thought on that so uh and in a way this is me kind of getting closure on that topic because I, I i've been wanting to talk about this for a long time uh, and it's good to finally have talked about it and um it makes me think about how i can prepare better for when i'm in the situation or i put others in the situation of having mm-hmm. to deal with me um because beyond marriage that's another weird thing that we do um last will and testaments are strange things uh or maybe not themselves strange but the way we treat them are very strange to me uh there's we we hold last will and text testaments very as sacraments almost right like uh, a good example is if i would just ask you something david will you do this for me you you would think about do i want to or not right yeah but if I am on my deathbed or my last wish was for you to do that for some reason it, it's still this is now. Yeah. You, you have uh, biased the cost benefit analysis of whether I want to do this um, by the circumstances. Yep. Um, for whatever reason. So that's it's just an interesting thing to think about. And uh, if it takes us putting a bunch of these things in our last will and testaments for how we want to be dealt with, you know, maybe that'll be something to do. So next time you visit with your estate planner, which I also highly recommend you have, and this would be a perfect sponsorship slot. <laughs> um, if we had a <laughs> an estate planner that was willing Please to see the contact information below if you'd like us to edit this post talk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, this episode is brought to you by the Insert Funeral Company Funeral Home. <laughs> oh, man. We really should get some better sponsors for some of these episodes. That'd be great. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. That's that's all I really had to say on the subject. Um, sure. I know we stretched it to almost an hour, but I don't want to beat this one to death. No pun intended. But yeah, do you have anything else you, you want to kind of add to the topic, I guess? Um, hmm. I don't know that I have anything else to bring up that we didn't already have on the list. Uh, this, this is largely not been a very philosophical episode to do, but it was a, it was a lot of build up to an important point um which is that of, of all of all the things can we get out of people's business when they're dead come on yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um i totally agree all right philosophers philosophers if you like the music in this episode please check out jippy on bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.